right, uh, so you have your Bibles, and we're open to Luke chapter 21 as we continue to marshal our way through, soldier on through the, the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we've observed that Luke has interests, uh, really, that are uh, outstanding, I would say, are, are noteworthy. Um, we know that he's writing, he's, he's a Gentile man himself, and he's writing to a Gentile man, Theophilus, and uh, evidently, one of the things Theophilus is interested in, or at least Luke's interested in imparting to Theophilus, is exact truth. Uh, there's a burden that Luke has, obviously, not simply with respect to Theophilus, but the Gentile world at large, is that they know and understand the exact truth. So at times, the Gospel of Luke can be really a polemic or an argument or an, an ap apologia, an apology, a defense. Uh, that Christianity isn't as bad as everybody's saying it is, uh, that Jesus is not as off his rocker as people think he may be. Um, and, and, uh, and, and in the text that we have here tonight before us, we really get another nuanced view of uh, Gentile authorship, Gentile readership, and that is, is more of a broad universal interest particularly with respect to the prophetic utterances of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have really in the Gospel of Luke some material with respect to the Olivet Discourse that you're not going to find in the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark. And uh, really uh, the reason that is, is because we as Gentiles have a little bit broader universal interests uh, than just specifically the nation of Israel and how it's going to track um, specifically with, relation, with, with respect to the Jewish people. We, we have some other interests. We have interests in world history, and what things are happening and, and why they're happening. We'll get a little bit of a flavor of that tonight. So tonight what I'd like to do is to read this passage. It's a little long. Uh, and the first thing I want you to write over Luke chapter 21 in the Olivet Discourse is there is no church age material for us in this passage. So write that down somewhere. I'm kidding. You don't have to write it down. But, but I'm, I want to say that again. Uh, uh, there is no, with respect to signs and times and all the things we as the Gentile church seem to love to get caught up in, uh, there is no information uh, with respect to any time uh, dealing between Pentecost and the rapture. Okay? Sort of, all right? Uh, uh, there is something that is going to be uh, in Jesus' future, uh, but it's, it's historical material with respect to the church as we are today. Um, and so there is, there is a little bit of that, but in terms of affecting us in the church age today, there is none. However... Obviously, then the question would be, well, then what's the value, right? What's the value of the material that's before us? Well, the value is, is Jesus is interested in ministering uh, not only to the hearts of Jewish people, but exactly or more precisely from Theophilus' perspective, uh, Luke, through Jesus, reports that Jesus has some very interests for him. And I think in the day and age in which we live, where we see all of the <laughs> upheaval uh, with the presidency and, and, and the choice of <coughs> some moral 
commitments that are contrary to the word of God, uh, yielding policies that are, you know, uh, at the very best, sad, at, the, at, at its very worst, tragic. Um, and, and coupled with that, sort of the Gentile or the, or the worldwide response to those policies uh, with Afghanistan and all the things that are going on, I think it is important for us to consider what ought to be the disposition of a local church and, and how are we who have this dual citizenship uh, we have our earthly citizenship, we're part of the United States of America, uh, but we are also citizens to the body church. We are, we are citizens of a heavenly realm. Well, uh, that realm is to come. We, we have uh, an allegiance, a prior, a prior allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ as head of the church. Uh, so part of what we'll do tonight is try to learn how to navigate through that and what specifically are we supposed to focus on. So those are the goals and objectives. Um, and uh, so let's go ahead and we'll read the text together. Uh, so how much information is here for the church in terms of, uh, of, of prophecy and signs and times? None. All right, so with that in mind, let's read, okay? Here we go. Starting with uh, verse number five. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he, that's Jesus, Jesus said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come. Ah, there it is. The days will come. Now, if we're not careful, we immediately think, ha, we're in those days. And I'm saying, no, we're not. Generally, not, okay? We're not. We're in a different set of days. The days will come in which there will uh, not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Verse 10, then he continued uh, by saying to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs. Jump down to verse 25. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them the parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it, and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, 
This generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. We skipped verses 12 through 24. There we believe Jesus is referencing specifically the question. This is the event that is uh, future still for Jesus, but from our perspective has happened in the past. And that's verses 12 through 24. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bring you before kings and governors for my name's sake, and it will it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. The ellipsis would be until it's God's perfect time for that to happen. We would argue, verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives by your, remember, that's a mark of saving faith. It's, it's, it's faith that is time-tested, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are days of vengeance, so that all these, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land, and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword, and will be led captive into, into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Alright, so some degree, we've tipped our hand a little bit, so we're essentially seeing in this passage uh, the parallel accounts from Matthew and Mark that include everything uh, except verses 12 through 24. Um, and as such, those who seek to harmonize the events uh, in Mark and Matthew uh, have a hard time unless they spend some time in Luke. Luke is very necessary for us to understand the timing, when these things are going to be happening, and what are the signs of them. And uh, so, um, so with that said, uh, we know this is the Olivet Discourse. Uh, we really pick that up. Uh, I believe in verse 37. Now, during the day, he was teaching in the temple, but at evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. So evidently, these were some of those times. Remember, we were in the Passion Week. We're probably at Tuesday. Uh, Jesus evidently is going back and forth, spending the day in the, in the temple. Remember, he turned over the, the money changers. He's, he's doing some things to that effect. He's, he, last week, he paused to warn about 
uh, the oppression of man-made religion, and, uh, and he helped to locate where that begins and, and how that happens. And he sort of sets for the church age really a, a level of, of, uh, of or, or the ability to have a litmus test for leadership and, and, and what that would look like and what it wouldn't look like. He did that. And now we're coming to this point where he kind of in the cool of the, or the evening hours goes up to, the, to all of it. And he, he begins to, to try to help his disciples understand uh, a little bit more. In Luke chapter 21, we have Jesus' prophetic office on full display. Remember, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And this is that prophetic part of who Jesus is. He's the perfect prophet. He's a prophet unlike any other. And uh, we have some uh, where many of the other prophets were often um, stressed and distressed and and not always have interest in the particular people to whom they were called to minister to, a.k.a. Jonah. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, as the perfect prophet, has some very specific spiritual interests in the lives of those who would hear his prophecy. Um, in our passage, he, he is speaking as a Jew, and he's speaking to his fellow Jews concerning the future of the nation in their beloved temple. Hopefully we, 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 we saw that. We picked that up in verse number 5. As we observed last week, the temple treasury and the oppressive pride of the religious leaders stand as the backdrop to Luke's reporting of this portion of Jesus' life. Man-made religion had poisoned the house of God. The beauty of God's very presence visible. Remember that Old Testament Shekinah glory? It was visible inside the temple had been exchanged for the cheap man-made decorations on the outside of the temple uh, and the votive offerings that were left there. Jesus takes time to prophesy the ultimate realignment of the hearts of the nation of Israel. Their love for all things temporal had eclipsed their ability to see Jesus as their king. Jesus would have them reduced to nothing in loving judgment in order to have their hearts turn to him. We have an example of that in our passage from our reference point historically, and we have another time in the future given to us in our passage where Jesus is going to once again apply himself uh, to realigning the hearts of his people to him, but in that day, he will be successful. He will be successful. So tonight we ask along with these soon-to-be apostles the questions concerning the end times. Luke, taken together with Matthew and Mark's account, addressed several questions concerning the Jews, concerning their temple, concerning their future, and what will happen and we are going to take a look at two of them with Luke tonight. And those questions are specifically these. Number one, when shall these things be? Specifically, we see in our text, Jesus' reference to saying that there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. They want to know when is that going to be? 
And then what shall be the signs of Jesus' second coming be? What will be the signs of his second coming? So we'll look at that. So the first thing we're going to apply ourselves to is this question, when shall these things be? Specifically, the destruction of the temple. Uh, we've already developed the context here. Uh, the backdrop is, is everybody sort of looking at the temple, the temple treasury being marveled about all that's going on there, the widow giving her last two mites so it can continue to be well supported. And, and Jesus sort of uh, trying to reverse this mentality to, to uh, help his disciples understand, uh, to the nation to understand that the temple has become problematic. Uh, that man-made religion has been literally the obstacle. These people have been made twice the children of hell. They thinking themselves to be religious. Their ears are stopped to anyone who would come into their life and to try to tell them otherwise. Uh, this is the backdrop. And Jesus, helping his disciples to see and to understand uh, that contrary to the beauty that they saw, uh, he saw wreck and ruin. And he saw a moment when, in fact, the temple itself would come under destruction. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, verse 7, when therefore will these things happen? I would argue my understanding from the, this particular text, this event was future for Jesus, but it's in uh, our historic windshield, and that is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by Titus. Uh, Jesus was warning the disciples in the very near future that this adoration and their love for a building, God would demonstrate very clearly that not only was that adoration for the building something that he was not interested in, but realizing that the temple and Jerusalem, to lose those two elements signaled the absolute destruction of all Judaism had to offer. Uh, they had already undergone that once when Babylon had come and overrun the temple and carried off everything. And, and they were scattered into all the Gentile nations. And remember, Jeremiah gave them some very specific uh, um, uh, things that they were to try to accomplish while they were in captivity. But, uh, but I believe that Jesus is referencing that A.D. 70 when Jerusalem would fall uh, very viciously. Uh, if you have opportunity, I would encourage you. Uh, there's a, uh, a church father by the name of Eusebius who lived in the 300s. And I think, you know, we might think, well, that's quite a ways away from Jesus. Well, in fact, he's probably one of the church fathers who is closest to living at the time of Jesus, uh, familiar with Josephus. And he writes of the horrific nature of, of that time for the nation of Israel. Uh, and he argues, and there's really no substantiation of this uh, from God's word, but he argues that before the city was surrounded by the Romans, the Christians had received some indication from God that they needed to leave. And according to Eusebius' ecclesiastical history, 
uh, the Christian, the Jewish Christians actually vacated the city and immediately, uh, because obviously, I think it would stand to reason, they weren't as committed to the temple. They weren't as committed to Judaism necessarily. They had come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The church was 70 years old and working out its Jewish-Gentile relationship. So they were a little more willing to leave, being able to see these things beginning to happen. But the Orthodox Jew, guess what all they did? They all gathered in Jerusalem, only to be surrounded by the Romans, and literally to be... Um, as the Romans often did, they, the city was besieged. Instead of attacking it, they just surrounded it, cut off all of the supplies. And if you want to read about the detailed atrocities that occurred inside of the city of Jerusalem, Eusebius gives them to you. And specifically, one he focuses on is the effects of famine. And, and uh, there's a particular disturbing um, report of, of, of a Jewish woman named Mary who cannibalized her own son and sort of was the absolute nadir of that whole experience. So Jesus is, is warning uh, uh, that this was going to occur. And then in, in, in seamless fashion, he, he, he moves in verse number 10. Um, well, we'll read a little bit more of 7 through 9 there. See to it that no one mislead you, for many will come in my name in this period of time, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 must take place first. But the end does not follow immediately even after that. So there's even going to be more of a time gap. I would argue. And he gets in then to uh, verse number 10, where he now jumps from the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 all the way now to the tribulation period. Okay, that's what I'm observing in this text. Um, then he continued by saying to them, there will come a time as well when nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes, and in various places, plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Now, these are all to be taken together. And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, if you're familiar with the four horsemen, if you're familiar with the judgments that they moderate over in the seals and the, uh, in the, seals and the bowls and the trumpets, these things will begin to sound very familiar to you. And you'll begin to see that this is Jewish men who are talking about their Jewish nation and what is going to happen to her and what it's going to look like. But then in verse 12, Luke, with his more universal interests, writing to a Gentile, him being a Gentile, gives us some information that only he records from the lips of Jesus. But before all these things, Jesus now is talking about the time leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So he's really talking now about you soon-to-be apostles. 
you men who are going to stand as witnesses for me on this earth in a way that no others will after your demise, here's what your life is going to look like, because this is their particular interest, right? It's always, well, what's going to happen to us? Us being me now in my generation. And, and, and what is more the universal interest? It's not just national. Luke begins to have some other interest, and he reports this. But before all these things, Jesus says, they will lay hands on you, apostles, you disciples, and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons. And if this isn't sort of the play-by-play -play of the book of Acts, I don't know what is. This is really what we have. And guess who's going to author the book of Acts? Who's going to give us the detailed information on the unstoppable movement of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome through the blood of the martyrs of the apostles? prisons bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds right now not to prepare. Now that is not a command for us in the church age. This is something specifically addressed to the disciples, to the would-be apostles. You have to prepare. <laughs> you, my friend, need to study to show yourself approved in God. God is not going to come down and tell you what to say to the judges who carry you off to be persecuted. We want to remember the church is always being persecuted. Uh, we just so happen in America not to have endured that for the last hundreds of years. But the church is, and she always will be. Uh, and we'll see here, this is the time of Gentile domination. But anyway, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds, you apostles, not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. These are the opponents who are bringing these people before synagogues and prisons. So it's, it's very narrow in its application. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. And, and we have example of that. We have frequent And what that means is not that the apostles' hair was never ultimately hurt. We know their lives were taken. And they were taken by martyrdom. But time and time again, Luke records in Acts that until it was God's sovereign appointed time, these apostles were untouchable. Untouchable. Paul would shake an asp off his wrist and throw it away. He would be beaten, left for dead, only to rise up and go forward again. Not a hair of their head would be affected. This is really the apostolic gift. This is the apostolic power. This is, this is uh, amazing to some degree. But we want to be careful. This is not for us. If you get bit by a snake, run to a hospital, my friend. Do what all good Gentiles do. Try to stay alive as long as you can. All right? Uh, uh, but uh, this is a reference, I would argue, uh, to the apostolic ministry and, and the absolute sovereign protection of God, much like it was for Jesus. Remember, they would pick up stones to do what to Jesus? To stone him. And he would just walk away. 
It's like they all got befuddled and like, where'd he go? You know, Jesus' time had not yet come. And remember, the apostles, the Hebrew word uh, is salia. It's, it's a very, uh, that upon which the Greek word uh, for apostle, which generally means messenger, but technically is referred to these 12 individuals, 14 of them actually in the New Testament. And, and they stood literally, uh, the idea was, the Hebrew concept was, when somebody was getting married and you couldn't be there, you could have somebody stand in for you, give the vows, and I assume kiss the bride on your behalf. And that's what that sort of relationship was like in Hebrew. That's the Hebrew concept. The New Testament concept is apostle. So it's literally like having Jesus here kissing the bride, the church, and telling her what to do and what not to do. And what they bound in heaven would be bound, and what they loosed would be loosed. Uh, so this is their time. And by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Uh, this is really simply a reference to persevering faith. Remember, there's all kinds of faith that saves. Right, I'm sorry, I didn't say that right. There's only one kind of faith that saves, but there's all kinds of faith out there. And... Um, what Jesus is simply saying, reporting, is the kind of faith that saves is an enduring faith. And boy, they were going to have to endure, right? The Apostle Paul running all over Asia Minor, no rest to be found. Uh, these guys were chased all over, threatened, never comforted. Uh, and if they would persevere, uh, if they would endure, if they would demonstrate the supernatural faith granted to them, given to them, by no one less than Jesus himself. Their lives, they would gain their lives. What did Jesus say? If you lose your life for my sake, you will find it, right? That's that whole idea, and we have it here. Uh, but when you, you apostles, see Jerusalem surrounded and, and those in your influence by armies and recognize that her desolation is near... This is not the eschatological desolation or the end times desolation. Some of the same verbiage is used. Uh, don't let that confuse you. Uh, this is Jesus reporting on a soon-to-be historic event. Her desolation is, then those who are in Judea must flee the mountains. We're going to find that same verbiage applied in the eschatological time or in the end times time when, again, Jerusalem is being surrounded. Um, but one commentator said this, lest we error by trying to harmonize all of this into one event, we don't want to do that. He says this, um, the attempts of the harmonists, or those who are trying to harmonize all this, to force a conformity between the material in Luke 21, 12 through 24, and the material in Matthew and Mark, are based on similarity of language rather than that of subject matter. For example, the warning to flee from Jerusalem into the mountains. So they would say, look, it's used here in Luke, uh, uh, in this portion that is supposed to be a soon-to-be historic event, and it's also used of the future time, right before Jesus' second coming. And because it's used in both, they must both be the same event. And, and he says, that's bad hermeneutics. There has to be some other clues and cues. And he says this, and it's true. He says, 
It is sound advice. It is sound advice in any threatened siege of Jerusalem, whether in AD 70 or at the end of the age, to get out of there. It's sound advice. And I thought, boy, that couldn't be said any better. Um, so, uh, he goes on to say, verse 21, that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. Those who are in the country must not enter the city. These are the warnings to the people who would be disciples of Jesus. History, at least through Eusebius, tells us that they listened to this and they got out while all the other Jews were consolidating because Jerusalem's the holy city and doggone it, they're going to protect it, right? Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days for, here will, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. How long? Only until Jerusalem becomes a state? Is that how long? It's not what my Bible says. How long? Until... The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So when are the times of the Gentiles fulfilled according to our prophetic calendar? We're listening for the trumpet, the first trumpet. <laughs> the rapture of the church. So folks, Jerusalem will be under the foot of Gentile domination, whether good or bad until the rapture. Mark it down. That's just how it's going to be. Now, I think we would, do, we would be well advised to support all that we can, the nation of Israel. They, they, they are God's people, and we know, we know, we have historic data that even those nations that were called to judge Israel by God, remember that? The Old Testament got in trouble because they judged them too hard. You know, Gentiles don't know any better. You know, when they go to kill people, they do it with earnestness. So God commanded them to do it. And then God judged them for doing it so severely. Say, so that's sort of that, you know, that father who wants their kid to go out and play football. But don't hit him too hard. <laughs> you know. Um, so I believe uh, that's what we have uh, going on here. We have Jerusalem who crucified Jesus. Now, I'm not, I'm not of the ilk that Eusebius was, our church father, who really railed on the Jews for having crucified Jesus, and that was part of the motivation for him writing in detail the history of Jerusalem sort of in, in all of its awfulness and its demise. We, we don't go that far. Uh, we understand that the cause for Jesus' death is shared universally. We are all sinners. Um, and we would argue that as much as the hands of the Jews were there, the hands of the Romans were there, and your hands and my hands were there. Um, but there does seem to be in this A.D. 70 
a hint of, not a hint, really a statement that this is a, 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 a judgment again upon the nation of Israel. They would be again scattered into the Gentile nations. And now there would be a, a season of Gentile domination. Who knows how long that's going to be. Uh, that's not going to be moderated by Jews coming and going into their land anymore or building a temple. That's all literally, when we think of the, the prophetic calendar, inconsequential. That can happen 10 or 12 times. We hope it doesn't. We hope it's only been, you know, we hope the statehood remains. We hope that these are harbingers of good times to come, although it's such a, it's such a tentative thing. Um, so there does seem to be some matters of discipline here. And then we return. I would argue that if you read 10 and 11, jump 12 to 24, go from 10, 11 to 25, you see it. And I'll do that. Then he continued by saying, nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes. These are all the, what, what we're, what's being talked about in the book of Revelation during the tribulation. Plagues, famines, terrors, great signs from the heavens. Verse 25, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth display among, uh, and on the earth dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea. These, these great uh, 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 cataclysmic natural events. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The powers of the heavens. And this is all taken together. 10, 11, 25, 26, 27. It's all a single unit. And it's all speaking of now that time during the tribulation where Jesus revisits his program with the nation of Israel. And these are the things that are going to occur. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory, what we call the second advent. Jesus will once again come and put his foot on the earth in defense of his holy city, Jerusalem, as the Gentile nations surround her to try to destroy her and be done. Jesus will have none of it. And the, 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 the slaughter there is horrific. Words be, uh, defy their ability to explain it. Metaphor is, is strained to try to understand the wrath of the king when he comes to protect his own, his people. Uh, it's a stunning sight. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up. This is the message for the nation of Israel, those who are left in the middle of the tribulation. Straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption nationally is drawing near. And he told them the parable of the trees when they put forth leaves you'll know it for yourselves so you also when you see these things happening particularly those who exist during that tribulation era when you see these things happening recognize that the kingdom of God is near and then he says truly I say to you this generation will not pass away now that makes sense right this generation the generation that's found in the tribulation, those generation of Jews, that generation will not pass away until they see this happen. Their redemption being come. Because we know how long does that last? The tribulation. Seven years. As far as I know, a generation is at least seven years long. And uh, so 
This is specifically with reference to those who find themselves in this, this end times context. Um, so truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And then verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away. And then he goes even the next eschatological step. Heaven and earth will pass away. Uh, the new heaven and the new earth, right? Uh, so we've got, here it is. Problem in the temple court. Oppressive religious leadership. The exchange of eternal interest for temporal interest. No longer interest in the Shekinah glory of God in the temple. Being amazed by the beauty of the stones and the temple. Jesus saying, I've had enough. I'm going to destroy this temple in, 70, in AD 70, and it's going to be horrific. You who are my disciples, when you hear this beginning to happen, get out of Jerusalem. And by Eusebius's report, they did. That's interest for the Jews. Now we're going to transfer to the tribulation. I'm going to judge Jerusalem here, but it's not going to do any good again. They're going to be, again, horrifically abused by Titus and the Romans, but they're still not going to get it. So I'm going to upheave the whole earth, literally the universe, or at least our solar system as far as we know it, given those judgments in the, in the eschatological time frame. And in that moment, they are going to... Look upon him of, in, uh, look upon him whom they pierced, and they will believe in that moment. So, are you looking for any of these signs? Wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, Jerusalem or Israel coming and going. Well, you can, but know this, and with this I close. There's no church here in the Olivet Discourse. The events were future to Jesus. One event was fulfilled and one is yet future. The matters of verses 10 through 11 and 25 to 28 speak with reference to the coming great tribulation and are enumerated in the book of Revelation, the four horsemen, their judgments on the face of the earth. National Israel has a comparatively complex prophetic calendar. It's very complex compared to the church. The church's prophetic calendar is simple. So tonight we look at these two simple questions. What is profound is that Jesus' prophetic office is not merely an exercise in predictive arts. Our text is clear. He had an interest in these disciples of his that if they weren't careful would get caught up in the destruction of Jerusalem. And he said, don't do that. He had an interest there. And he also longed for his disciples not to be misled, verse 8, specifically with the question to his own identity and the timing of prophetic events. Uh, he knew the nature of his own was to go after other would-be messiahs. He too sought to keep his own from being alarmed, living a life of alarm all the time. So tonight, if you are alarmed or are quick to lose the focus of the church age. What's the focus of the church age? What was Jesus' last word on earth, first word to the church? Be all alarmed about 
pestilence and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars. Folks, that's just Gentiles. We do that just, that's how we are. No, he said, go make a disciple. Teach them everything that I've commanded you. And oh, by the way, here's the settling truth, Gentiles. I am with you wherever you go. That's the focus. That's the focus. That's the heart. Are we heavy about what's going on in Afghanistan? Are we heavy about our own nation and the policies? Absolutely. But we're not alarmed. We're not. We refuse to lose our focus. We're praying for names. And if we have a name, we're praying for their conversion. Because we know the most tragic thing that is always going on and has happened today. Men and women have died and split hell wide open. That is the worst thing that can happen to our Gentile friends. Among all the other options that are out there. LGBTQ, being confused about their gender, voting whatever way you don't like. Those may be tragic, but the most tragic thing is the question of their eternal destiny, right? That's the focus. That's the focus. And the beauty is, it may be tonight. I'm tired. I'm tired. That's why Hebrews says, Kent, you got to endure. Your greatest need church saint is to endure. You've just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other because this is not the age of satisfaction. If you're looking for satisfaction, you're, you're, you're in the wrong faith community. Okay? If you're looking to learn about having your whole life and character graded to become more like Jesus through challenging trials, you're in the right faith community. That's what we got. And, um, and we endure. But we're in Christ. We have some amazing things that operate in our behalf. We should probably talk a little bit more about them, but we're already gone too long. So I commend to you Luke chapter 21. How much church truth is there? Well, there's a lot of church truth uh, to some degree. Uh, but when it comes to signs and figuring out things, there is nothing there for you. Nothing nothing. Isn't that nice? Because Gentiles, we're simple people. All you got to do is listen for a trumpet. That's it. And you just keep enduring. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love you. We need you, Jesus. We, we confess we're tired. Uh, we confess that uh, we need to endure. We, we, we don't have that quality and capability as an innate thing. We we, uh, we just don't. So we thank you that you've saved us, that you've given us a new nature, that you've given us the, the completed canon of Scripture. We can hear from heaven every single day. And, and we, we have uh, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And we have each other in the church, a, a faith community who has this amazing spiritual reality operating through every single one of us to encourage each other. Uh, we thank you for these things. And Jesus, we know you called us friends in the church age. You called us that because compared to all the other faith communities, 
that we have in Scripture. You have comparatively told us everything, and you have. Uh, we have such amazing truth in the rearview mirror historically uh, concerning all that you are, Jesus. We thank you for that as well. So we gather all these things up. Keep us grounded, Lord. Keep us focused. Uh, keep us um, uh, as good churchmen and churchwomen as we await that, that call home, that, that, that rapture. And uh, thank you for it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You are dismissed. Lord bless you.